All right, welcome to episode 54 of This Week in Legal Blogging, presented by LexBlog. My name is Bob Ambrogi. I am the host, and LexBlog is home to the world's largest community of legal bloggers and is the industry-leading provider of professional blogs and turnkey digital publishing solutions to lawyers and the world's largest law firms for more than 17 years. As for me, I am the editor at the Law Sites blog, have another podcast called Law Next, where we talk about innovation and entrepreneurship and law. And today, on This Week in Legal Blogging, I'm very happy to have as my guest, Michael P. Ryan. He is of counsel to the law firm Jaspin Schlesinger in Garden City, New York, chair of the firm's trust and estates and estate litigation practice groups, and most pertinently to this program, he is the author of the New York Trust and Estates blog, which you can find at nytrustandestatesblog.com, coincidentally. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me, Bob. I'm looking forward to this for a while. <laughs> well, we have been looking forward to it for a while. We had a couple of false starts, so we're, we're, I'm glad we were able to finally get together and get going. Yep, yep. So before we get started with talking about your blog, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about your own career and your practice, what you do? Ah, well, I'll start at the end, so to speak, and the current practice. As you said, I'm in the trust and estates field and devoting the practice so overwhelmingly toward litigation. That's been my experience. I left the court system in the surrogates court as a court attorney, uh, retired from that about 11 years ago or so and went into practice as a litigator. Uh, as you know, trust and estates is divided into planning, administration, and litigation. So when I speak to bar associations, or more importantly, when I speak to community groups, which I love to do, uh, I tell them about the three parts of estates practice and that I'm the one person they never want to meet if they can help it at all. Because, because you only enter the picture when everything's broken down? Exactly so. There are problems uh, in the estate. There are problems in the family dynamics. There are problems in the estate plan that's been created uh, with glitches in it, so to speak. So I, I, I take that uh, responsibility uh, very seriously because I spent so many years seeing the high volume of problems that crop up and come into the courthouse. Uh, I was blessed to work for some fantastic judges I enjoyed every minute of it. And when I spend my years in practice, I wanted to devote them as best I could to serving my clients efficiently, fairly, and not being part of the problem, if you know what I mean, instead of uh, trying to be part of the solution. So it's very, very gratifying. So you're not the guy I'm going to come to to help figure out my estate. Uh, you're, you're the guy I'm going to, my, 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 my heirs are going to come to uh, when they disagree with the way it, it turned out or something like that. Exactly. So although I do have a canned lecture that I've given on a number of occasions of what I call defensive estate planning, because my colleagues who do estate planning uh, rarely have the knowledge of what can go wrong. So while they can draft a beautiful set of documents, if they don't give attention to the details of family dynamics or issues that might crop up or vexatious litigation that might result from those family dynamics, there are things you can do that I know about that I would love to be able to tell them. So I say to my partners here who do estate planning exclusively, if you have any issues or have any inklings that there may be fights in the future, let's sit down and talk about it. Let's see if there are ways we can add some new tools to your estate planning documents 
or even just particular provisions in your wills and trusts to try and provide a major disincentive to the obstreperous sibling or child who you know is going to make trouble. How did you get into this area of law? Was it something you had an interest in uh, right starting from law school or did you uh, nope. find your way into it? Uh, did you ever see a pinball machine with a ball bouncing <laughs> back and forth? <laughs> That's pretty much been uh, the story of my career in that respect. I, I sent you uh, the firm's biography of me. I, I saw that, which you, said you wanted to be a physicist. Yeah, I'm a failed mathematical physicist. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. It just had a knack for me. I had a great fun time with it. But one of my, among many shortcomings, was that college was like candy store to me. Everything was interesting. And unlike my colleagues in the physics department, unless you were absolutely uni-focused, you weren't really going to do anything original or new with it. So as a result, and remember, Bob, I have no real background in law or education or the professions of any sort. I'm a kid from the streets of Brooklyn. Uh, my sons love to hear me tell stories of kick the can, sick ball. And that was the last era of that being done. So as a result, since I knew I wasn't going to ever do anything original in mathematical physics, I went to graduate school in philosophy. <laughs> Love that political philosophy, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. After a year and a half or so of that, I finally woke up, said to myself, you know, Mike, you'll never be able to earn a living doing this. And that's when I said, what else can I do? And I said, well, there's always law school. Because even if I don't have any particular love for any area of the law, let alone law in general, I figured I could make a decent living out of that. And it turns out 40 years later, I have. Um, So... I uh, got out of law school, spent some time with a small firm in Manhattan doing uh, international work, Admiralty. Didn't care for it so much. Then I had an opportunity to join the court system uh, with a wonderful judge. And I said, what the heck? Let's see what this is about. Figuring I would spend a couple of years there, learn some practical skills of litigating and go back to practice. Well, the long story short is quite literally true. I just fell in love with the work and the people I was working with and spent many a happy year there until it was time to retire. And I was young enough to go back to practice and uh, earn the money to enable me to pay off the loans for my sons in their college debts. <laughs> yeah, that's how times yeah. have changed so much. Um, my father, God rest his soul, was a bus driver. And he was uh, somehow able to put all of us through college. Yeah. Of course, we helped out with jobs and loans yeah. and whatnot. But at the time, to go to college was maybe four or $5,000 a year. Right. It's not like that anymore. So yeah. I was going to be darned. I don't want to use any bad language on uh, your blog, <laughs> but I was going to be darned if I couldn't pitch in and make sure that my sons had the freedom to go to college and do what they wanted afterwards instead of becoming chained to having to pay back loans. So here I am. I've been in practice now for 11 years or so. Uh, Since my practice in the courts was with surrogates court and trusts and estates litigation, that naturally lent itself to doing this. And I'm happy with Jasmine Schlesinger. My colleagues here are just wonderful. Um, And um, so so the pinball uh, hit the target at some point. Uh, I suppose so. And if if not an intentional target, it always gets into the drain at the bottom. And that's that's another way (laughs) of looking at it, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now that, that, that similar, I have some similarities in my career in the sense that I never really planned to go to law school. Pretty much up until the point that I went to law school, it was kind of uh, kind of happenstance. But uh, here I am, all these years later. Uh, yeah, isn't that funny? Still at it. <laughs> Bob, I'll tell you a story. I had a great friend in law school. He was brilliant and the hardest worker I ever met. We're still very close friends. Uh, he wanted to become a corporate tax specialist. That's all he wanted. I didn't know what I wanted. I wanted a job. Well, lo and behold, he got a job with the premier uh, classic old-fashioned firm doing precisely what he had wanted to do. And it turned out that, like Oscar Wilde once said, there are two tragedies in a person's life. The second tragedy is not to get what they dreamed of, but the first tragedy is to get what they dreamed of. <laughs> so now he found that to be true, and the firm nearly killed him psychologically. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so he stuck it out for two or three years, left it, started his own practice, and he's happy ever since. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when I put in my spotlight uh, sort of advice to the younger generation, uh, I, I try to sort of touch both of those bases that much of your uh, opportunities in life will come about through your design, but also through happenstance. Mm -hmm. um, I remember it, it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to help uh, sort of younger people even understand that, but it, it does so much uh, does end up being happenstance and being in the right place at the right time or uh, just a, 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 a the right turn at the right time. Uh, yeah, precisely so. Yeah, I used to always yeah. advise my sons when they would say to themselves, "I don't think I could apply for this school or this job. I won't get in. I won't be accepted." I would say to them, "Well, you've already rejected yourself. Why not let them reject you?" Yeah. So give it a shot. Yeah. So, um, well, well, that's that's you. Tell me just a little bit about your firm, and then and then we'll talk about your blog. But what, tell sure. me a little bit more about the firm that you're at. The nice thing about Jasmine Sussinger is that they have a, a multidisciplinary practice. I would say with a heavy focus on banking, uh, corporate and commercial uh, transactional work, and litigation. On that, they have some absolutely stellar corporate and commercial litigators. And that's a great resource for a trust and estates litigator because so much of our issues can frequently deal with family businesses and the wreckage that's left behind when the founder parent passes away and leaves mm -hmm. the business and the corporate books and the mess that's involved to siblings who either one, don't want to do the business, but love to take the money from it, or two, think they know better than mom or dad who started the business. So having those resources uh, with a, a wonderful group of people here is terrific. They have a labor practice, too, that's of a top quality. Uh, I, I rarely draw upon that expertise. But having all of those teammates in conjunction you know, has been an enormous advantage to the Trust and Estates Department. Yeah, I, I had a, somebody on this show recently who did uh, planning for small family-owned businesses, planning yep. and and litigation around, it sounded very much like what you were talking about, because when, when, when the planning fails or fails to plan properly, uh, disputes inevitably arise uh, in, in those family-owned businesses and, and can often lead to yep. all sorts of problems and not just litigation, but, but bad feelings and other, other things. Which is a tragedy because it could yeah. be avoided if it was anticipated and therefore planned. Yeah. Uh, but it's the case that the skill that goes into being an entrepreneur and creating a business is not really congruent with the skills of thinking of what happens when I leave the scene. 
or you just pass the buck and will not worry about it because you have the daily affairs of your business to worry about. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. I've given many lectures on business planning and traps to avoid that way. You have. Oh, I should talk to you about that. <laughs> We're just in the middle of setting up a business with my son, and we've been going through all of this. I, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I happen to be married to a business lawyer uh, who's uh, so uh, not not sure she's the, the most neutral of advisors on on all of this, but uh, certainly been very helpful. I can imagine. I'm married to a lawyer too. <laughs> so, so Mike, we, we I mean, as I mentioned uh, uh, at the outset, you you uh, your your firm has you have a, a blog called the New York Trust and Estates Blog. Um, so how did that come about? Uh, how did that get started? Oh, about two years ago, maybe a little bit more, uh, the firm decided to make a larger media platform presence, if that's the phrase, and start blogs in their various other areas, employment and labor law, uh, commercial transactions, uh, uh, banking, things of that sort. Well, I wanted in, so to speak. And I volunteered to see if we could do a trust and estates blog uh, on a weekly basis. I haven't done one for a little while now because December was a particularly busy month for me. But as high a level as our other blogs are in the firm, at the outset, I originally wanted, along with my colleagues in the department, to be of a little bit different tone. So we began the blog with what we called the human touch. Yes, of course, it's designed to try and draw in people who might become clients. Uh, but it's also designed to be a public service. And I don't mind sounding disingenuous about that. Uh, because I found that when I would speak to community groups, or even professional groups, accountants, or even lawyers who don't do this sort of practice, how little they know about the most basics of trusts and estates. What happens if I die without a will? How do I get a will? What is this thing about a trust? I get these invitations for free dinners all the time to set up a trust and whatnot. So uh, the team at Trust and Estates made an intentional decision to try and be as informative to the general public as it might be to our colleagues in the profession. A lot of Trust and Estates blogs are terrific, but they're lawyers speaking to lawyers. Uh-huh. Look at the latest case from New York County or Nassau County uh, about some very abstruse area of the law or procedural uh, issue. We wanted to avoid that and try and, in a sense, be more generalized and also introduce ourselves as human beings with our own personal interests, because maybe that would make a connection with a person. And even if it didn't, it might entertain them for a few moments if they were even looking at our product. Yeah. And, and who's the we in that equation? Who else is contributing to the blog? Well, uh, the department itself has about five or six people. Uh, Jessica Paquette is one of our managing partners and a tremendous uh, litigator, both on the commercial side and the trust and state side. Uh, Sandra Bussell is of counsel with me. Uh, Sally Donahue is a partner. Sally, like me, devotes most of her practice to litigation with a heavy dose of guardianship litigation. Uh, Mindy Smolovitz is our planner. Victor Finman is our planner, too, and administrator. So they do the administration side, and they do the sophisticated planning. Uh, so it's a, a very well-rounded team that works together well. And uh, together, we all try to pitch in with blog entries. 
Sally and I, who are the litigators, and I suppose are a little bit more, how would you say it, hams, I think contribute the majority of the blogs. It's just, uh, I suppose, the nature of a litigator. You can't shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And and do you have, is there, is there method to the madness? I mean, do you have any kind of a schedule or an editorial calendar or an assignment calendar? I mean, how do you figure out who's doing what, when? Yes, we're constantly trying to uh, schedule things at least on a weekly basis or a biweekly basis. Uh, In fact, when we hang up now, and you're relieved of the burden of chatting with me, I'll be doing something for uh, publication in the next couple of days or so, uh, trying to search around for an issue, a theme that will appeal to the general public and uh, maybe a lawyer or two. So, yeah. yeah, we try and do it on a weekly basis. Yeah. Does, does anybody kind of serve as an editor or, or anything like that? Or is it all kind of uh, cooperative? Very cooperative, very collaborative. If someone has yeah. something in a draft, they'll circulate it around, say any ideas or any thoughts, or for proofreading purposes. And then once we're satisfied with it, we'll send it up the chain of command. Uh, they'll approve it and post it, do whatever technical work they have to do to put it together. Yeah, yeah. So at the time that you started this, uh, how familiar with you, were you with blogs? How familiar were you with writing for blogs? I'm not familiar at all, uh, aside from uh, just the personal interest in reading in general, yeah. uh, reading blogs that have nothing to do with the law. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of music of all sorts, so I like to keep following what's happening in the world of music. My sons have picked up the love of things like opera and Bob Dylan and whatnot, so we frequently share things and essays we come across. So my only familiarity with blogging was as an appreciative audience member of blogs that I was interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any trouble getting into it? I mean, I, I don't know what, how much writing you had done in your career up to that point, but uh, how, how easy was it or difficult was it for you to get started with it? Not at all. I always try and approach each blog entry as having two parts. One, the legal part and two, the let's call it the human touch part. Yeah. And the fun puzzle is how can I make a connection between the two? So let's suppose for the sake of argument, um, I want to talk about how to avoid a will contest. Well, that's a very, very interesting topic for people. And then I'll try and find uh, an interesting anecdote from the world of law, the world of public affairs of a great and famous, say, for instance, musician, composer, jazz artist who left a mess behind when he or she passed away. Mm-hmm. And that gives me the opportunity to describe the details of the public nature of that dispute. And frankly speaking, gives me an opportunity to post links to certain selections of their music. Yeah. So maybe there'll be someone out there who looks at saying, say, hey, I never heard of Charlie Parker or John Coltrane. What is this thing called Giant Steps? And then if they'll see the video that's uh, publicly available on YouTube, they'll get an introduction to genius of vast importance, I think, to us as Americans. So that's a keen thing to do too. Kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Right, so you're not just teaching about trust in the States, but you're teaching about jazz. In a sense, yeah, (laughs) I have a love for that sort of a thing. I've been teaching on the side for uh, well over 25 years at a local law school. 
Yeah. And I love that deeply, the interaction with people and the opportunity to communicate something to them, albeit of yeah. a technical nature. Here's yeah. the tax law about trusts and estates, or here's litigation in trusts and estates. Yeah. Uh, it's a law school, so they won't let me teach a course in the history of American jazz or things like that, or, or opera or something like that. But yeah. I'm trying to uh, work on law and opera or law and American classical music, but they haven't bitten yet. So. Yeah. Well, and you've got law and Shakespeare. I was going through your, going through some of your uh, posts uh, in, in the one night I thought that was a lot of fun was called My Second Best Bed and Other Odd Bequests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was a great it, one to do. Yeah, that was a that was a fun one. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Do you remember? The fun thing is, as I said, uh, one of the great almost epiphanies of my life was learning to read and learning how much I love to read and learn about things. And I early on came to uh, reading Charles Dickens and reading instead of saying Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I also liked the challenge too, because I would read a passage in Shakespeare and I would say, what the heck did I just read? And I'd have to go back to it. So it was almost like a mathematical puzzle. Once I solved it, I would have this odd experience of saying, I have just experience and emotion I knew I had, but I could never articulate. So that was a wonderful thing to do. And the fact that Shakespeare is a such overwhelming genius like Dante or, or, or someone like that, that it's inexhaustible. You always bring something new to it when you go back to one of the works. Uh, you're a new person reading it. If I've read it not 10 years ago or seen it performed 10 years ago. Well, in his personal life, uh, Shakespeare left his will a provision for his wife, Anne Hathaway, his second best bed. I knew that as just an anecdote you pick up over yeah. the years. Which, which sounds like you kind of wonder, why is second best bed? Yeah. The one theory out there is that in those Elizabethan times, the second best bed was, in effect, the really good bed, the expensive bed, because the second best bed will be the one to use for guests in, say, a well-to-do household, as his was in Stratford-on-Avon by the time he established his household. So it might not have been uh, a slight to his wife as much as a way of giving her maybe what might have been one of the most valuable items in the household. Yeah. So that was interesting enough to me. And, of course, over the years, the scholars would like to make it as some sort of a slight and psychoanalyze Shakespeare as a result. Right. Yeah. But there was a, that was my hook. Yeah. I mean, yeah. who could resist a blog entry that says, I give my surviving spouse my second best bed. That's going to draw anybody in to read yeah, it. Obviously, it caught me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so there. So, uh, you know, you, you said already you haven't, you're, you're a little, little slower on the uptake and blogging over the last month or so because you've been busy. As, as a general rule, do you have kind of a routine around this? How do you fit it into? I mean, you've got a litigation practice. You've got, uh, you know, I'm sure a, a personal life and a family and everything else. How do you fit this into your everything you're doing? I'm always on the lookout for interesting topics that might make a blog entry. So early in the morning when I first log into my emails and the certain feeds I get from the trust and states or tax community, if there's an interesting case that has a personal uh, feature to it, 
that will key in something that says, ah, that will make an interesting entry. And then I'll put it in the back of my mind, enter into my computer in a little subfile uh, called ideas and things. And then sometime during the week in the evening or maybe on the weekend, I'll sit down and put it together, deliver it to uh, our PR people and pass it along maybe for ideas to my colleagues. And then I've got it done. So I'm always on the lookout for something that might be both informative to the public and entertaining too. Yeah. And look for that hook that'll make it uh, an opportunity to uh, introduce them to something you might otherwise not know about. So a couple of years into this now, what's what's been the reception? Do you have a sense of whether people are reading it, who's reading it? Do you get feedback at all from readers? Yes, but from an interesting source. We send it out on the firm's website, yeah. and then we also post it on our individual LinkedIn uh-huh. pages. And the LinkedIn pages have been a very fruitful source of viewings. I get quite a number of people viewing them and quite a number of people uh, liking them. And that's very gratifying. I'm not even sure if on LinkedIn you can dislike something. So uh, <laughs> luckily I have the advantage of not seeing any negative feedback. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but no one has put in a comment saying, you dope, or you're ignoramus. Yeah. You don't know anything about Duke yeah. LinkedIn, or you don't know anything about trust and estates. Well, that's okay, too. Luckily, yeah. that hasn't been my experience. So that has uh, been very gratifying. Yeah. Do you think it's had any impact from a, a marketing point of view? Do you think it's had any uh, led anybody to to come to your firm for trust and estates advice or led to any referrals or anything like that? Yes, I, I, I can point to several instances of it doing just that. And in fact, that goes back to the very beginning of our blogging, because when the firm became active in the blogging world with the other departments, one thing that interested me was a friend of mine who has a solo or small practice in trust and estates, uh, as a hobby more than anything else, he's retired from a major Manhattan law firm. He put himself on the internet with blogging and Twitter and Facebook and whatnot. And he found that he picked up clients less from his technical blogs as much as from his personal interest blogs. So, mm-hmm. for instance, if he had a particular hobby or a particular love for cats or dogs, and he would put an entry to that effect, lo and behold, someone would out there read it and say, well, here's someone I can identify with. Let me call him and see what he thinks about my problem uh, from all walks of life. And um, as a result, he picked up a lot of clients um, from the blog as much from his personal hobbies as from his display of his technical acumen. That was inspiring to me. And that was, I suppose, one of the inspirations for us to design our blog with what we call the human touch. Yeah. And several people have called as a result from that and uh, introduced themselves to us and said, we have some trust in states issues and uh, we like what we've seen from your entries. Yeah. Lawyers are people too. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it gives people reading it a, a basis to have some some empathy with you and uh, and to to feel that they can, you know, as you say, that they can trust you, relate to you in some way that uh, a lawyer biography on a web page doesn't do. Exactly. So, and again, back to the uh, rubric of a human touch. Yeah. 
and to have that confidence in the attorney. Yeah. And you hope that you sustain that confidence during your representation. And I think we have. I think that's one of the reasons I uh, love my colleagues, both in the firm and in the department. Yeah. So uh, is it something that you intend to keep keep going at, uh, keep doing for a period of time? Or? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so long as I'm here and in active practice, we'll continue doing that. And, um, well, when the curtain closes, the curtain closes. So I won't really be concerned <laughs> at that point. Yeah. About my uh, sounds like something trust and estates lawyers might say a lot. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Like <laughs> death and taxes we live with every day. Yeah, right. it's not coincidental, by the way, Bob, that uh, Dickens, yeah. who I said uh, I'm a idolater of, uh, set his great novel of expose of the English legal system and its uh, absurdities in a probate contest in Bleak House. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. Um, uh, the litigants in this area frequently come early to understand the protracted nature of litigation, the expensive nature of that litigation, and the almost maddening frustration to the experience unless you actively try to work efficiently for your client. Mm-hmm. We also have a sideline as a mediation practice. Uh, uh-huh. My colleague Sally Donahue and I uh, do mediation, and it's very reward, rewarding and gratifying because whatever fee might be paid to us as a mediator is usually a multiple savings from what otherwise would take place in right. a litigation setting. For instance, right. this morning I uh, described to you before we started about a court conference I had on a contested counting of a trust. It's going on six years now. And it's just an internecine battle of siblings that is absolutely wasteful and tragic in its own way. And that's very frustrating to me on a personal level. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and mediation can help uh, perhaps cut uh, cut short that litigation and yeah. resolve it in a way that everybody can walk away at least, right. at least where nobody's a loser, right? You're always a loser when you litigate on a personal level, yeah. Well, somebody's ultimately the loser, but yeah. Well, you know, that's a good point because so few cases actually go to judgment and decree. Yeah. 99% are going to be settled. It's yeah. just the level of effort that's required to get into it in order to get that at a point where the parties will settle. Yeah. So if, if, if other lawyers uh, are watching this uh, and thinking of starting their own blog or maybe already have their blog, is there anything that you've learned from doing this for a few years now that you think would be useful advice for them? Well, I think the first thing I would say to a brother or sister lawyer interested in doing this would be to test yourself to avoid a jargon. It's so easy to collapse into jargon that will be understood by another trust and estates attorney or another tax attorney or another banking attorney, but would be opaque to the general public. Now, the general public might include professors of physics at Harvard down to or up to anything. If you can't make your topic understandable to the general public, I think as a writer, you've failed. Um, One of my heroes as a physics major was a Nobel laureate named Richard Feynman. 
He was also famous as being a teacher, too, because sometimes great technical expertise like that doesn't translate in being able to be a good teacher. And you can look up his YouTube videos and see what a quirky personality he had. He had a very pronounced Brooklyn accent, which endeared him to me, of course. But he would also say about teaching that if you are not able to communicate some very fancy concept in advanced physics to a lay person in an understandable fashion, you don't understand it thoroughly enough yourself. I think that's a good lesson both for the teacher and for the writer. Yeah, I think that is a very good lesson. If you if you uh, are able to uh, put something into words and, and uh, present it to somebody else in a way they can understand, then it helps helps you understand it uh, as well, or it shows that you understand it. At least. Exactly so. The best advice yeah. I had along those lines was from my old mentor and boss, Judge C. Raymond Radigan in the surrogates court of Nassau County. And he always said, if you want to learn something, force yourself to teach it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, we're uh, about at the end of our time here. I, r- I really appreciate your uh, taking the time to tell us about your blog and, and about your practice. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Well, Bob, it's, I, I'm more appreciative even so that you let me uh, bore you on for about these, what has it been, three or four hours now? <laughs> it seemed like that. <laughs> well, the, the audience is only going to hear the last 30 minutes part of it. But uh, no, it, it's uh, it's been It hasn't been boring at all. It's been great to talk to you, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, And uh, I wish we could talk longer, but we are out of time. So A great pleasure, Bob. Thank you for asking me. I've enjoyed the experience enormously. Good luck always, and um, good blogging. (laughs) Happy blogging. Happy Happy blogging and stay healthy, right? (laughs) Good. Thanks. Uh, thanks again to Michael Ryan. His, his blog is the New York Trust and Estates blog at nytrustandestatesblog.com. The firm is Jasper Schlesinger. And once again, this was episode 54 of This Week in Blogging. If you've uh, not done so yet, check out our full library of shows. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Also at Lexblog at lexblog.com slash TWILB for This Week in Blogging find each and every show as well as outlines and transcripts on behalf of everybody at lex blog this is bob ambrosi thanks for listening